tea with Toby. Tea with Toby. Tea with Toby. Welcome to season five of our Tea with Toby podcast. This season, our focus is all about elevating social care, and we touch on a number of key and topical subjects vital to growing care organisations. On this episode, we have a two-part special, and we're joined by Ben Hales, head of M&A at Optimo Care Group, and Jade Ken, senior associate at Stephen Scone. And we'll be discussing how to become acquisition ready and some of the learns Optimo Care gained through seven acquisitions in eight months, tripling the size of the company. So without further ado, let's dive in. So Ben, great to have you on the show. So for those that don't know you, if you can just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do in the company you represent, that'll be awesome. Sure, so my name's Ben Hales. I'm the head of M&A for Optimo Care Group. Uh, we are a family-owned care provider uh, based in the north of England, well, across the north of England, mainly northwest Liverpool, Manchester areas, across the Yorkshire. Um, we provide, in, in the round, three types of care to an extent. Generic domiciliary care, supported living and complex care, split across three divisions. Um, we employ around 1,000 people um, across 14 offices. Awesome. So, Ben, I... In true Tea with Toby fashion, I'm going to dive straight in. And I pay a lot of attention to the press in the care sector. And I keep seeing Optimo pop up and your face pop up with the number of acquisitions you've done. Yes. Um, so can you share us a little bit about that journey in terms of where it started, uh, where you are now, and where do you plan to go? Sure. So I think, I mean, to an extent, it goes back probably 25, 30 years. So... Um, We've been as a management team in social care for, for about 30 years. And we've got a lot of experience in buying and building in previous businesses and, and now with Optimum again. So we like to think we know what we're doing when it comes to acquiring businesses. Um, and, and really, it was all about waiting for the right time. So, so Optimo itself was, was founded in 2010. Uh, and for about 10 years, really, we, we kind of grew that business organically. We did a few acquisitions here or there. Um, and then, obviously, in... 2020 COVID hit, which kind of shook everything up for everybody in the sector. Mm. Um, and it was firefighting for lots of those two odd years that it, that it went on for. And, and coming out of the back of COVID, really, it was it was a case where it seemed like the right time to, to start that sort of buy and build process again. Um, we saw lots of opportunities, both from the natural attrition with people looking to retire, but also people that probably pre-COVID weren't looking at retiring had got through COVID and really felt like they had enough. So, mm. so there was lots of, of businesses going to market, but also there weren't that many other businesses looking to acquire. So it felt like a, a perfect time to, to really get in uh, and start acquiring more and more dom care initially and then moving more into supported living and complex care. So since August last year, we've, we've done seven acquisitions in eight months. Wow. Um, so it's been a, a very, very quick sort of period and a busy period for us. Um, we've trebled in size, both from a staff perspective and mm. office perspective. Um, and we've gone about it in a, in a slightly different way to what you would class as a traditional PE-backed business. Um, because of being family-owned, we can take a different approach to, to others. And it's been a mixture of larger standalone offices, but also bolt-ons into existing offices. Um, so we get a real variety of deal sizes, types of deals that we see come across our desk and, and 
different experiences with every single deal we do. Awesome. So I would love to dive into the approach and also the, the deals as well. But what I've seen um, from our client base, from uh, just talking with uh, colleagues in the sector, there are a lot of family-run care businesses that the next generation aren't really interested in actually taking on the business moving forward. Or there's some people who just maybe want to retire and do other things. Now, for from an acquisition perspective, what are some of the criteria and attributes that Optimo look for when, it, when it's considering an acquisition? So I think really it, it, the first thing that we look at is that we're, because we're focused across the three divisions on those three sort of subsectors, with it being generic domiciliary care, supported living and complex care, they're the first things we look for. So if something falls into one of those categories, instantly we're interested. Um, but then it's, it's trying to boil the process down to make it as simple as possible when you're evaluating these as soon as they land on your desk because, because of the amount of businesses that are going to market right now. You can't look at all of them in detail. Mm. So you have to kind of, and over time we've refined this process and we're still refining it every, every single time we go through this. But it, it's focusing on really a few specific things that you can kind of suss out at the start. So first and foremost, you look at the geography. So where is this based? Um, if it fits in the north of England or Yorkshire um, or even south southwest um, and southeast, it ticks the box for us straight so away. Location's uh, important. Uh, location is always important because it's it kind of leads into everything else that comes below that. So so then you start looking at the size. Well, how big is this? Is it this a small bolt-on? So if it's in one of the regions we've already have an office and it's you know sub. 1,500 hours a week of, of care, yeah. then realistically, you're going to be looking to bolt that into an office. And that's that's more about our operating model in, in terms of how big that business is to stand on its own okay. and so be the, left as, as one office. So it's the size, like 1,500 is the max or the minimum no, no, for it to be? More to, more to stand alone. So okay. to stay as a single site, that's okay. sort of the size you look at. Otherwise, you, you ideally want to be looking at ways that that can be merged into an existing office. Okay. Um, because the, the infrastructure that these offices need in terms of headcount, but also systems and, and support, they need to be generating enough revenue ultimately to warrant that investment. Mm. So sometimes when it's smaller than that, you want to do the deal because it works in your location. Mm. So it, it still makes sense to do, just not make sense to stand alone. So from that then, you kind of look at the financial performance. So ultimately, is this business making money? So from a, from a before you bring it into your own operating model or you look at any synergy savings, does, does this business stand up from its financial performance on paper? Mm. Um, and there's a number of things you can, you can do to do that, to try and assess that. Um, financial statements, looking at hours on, on what the, the charge rate is and things like that. Yeah. So then you look at it from that. Side. So does it work from size and geography? Yes. Is this business making money? And it's not always a case of that it needs to be making money because sometimes businesses are actually losing money. You can, when you bring it into your model, you can make changes. But if you're looking at the perfect acquisition, yeah. especially if you're a first-time acquirer, you want it to be making money, ultimately. Okay. Then you've got its operational standpoint. And this is quite a big, a big element of, of the deal. And yeah. it's where acquisitions can sort of fall over quite easily post-completion. So firstly, looking at the contracts. So is there a contract end date coming up? 
Because if a smaller business is only doing 1,500, 2,000 hours a week, mm. and all of that is on one contract, which is up for renewal a year after completion, mm. that whole business value is based on that one contract. Yeah. So what, what's the contract terms? Do, does that make sense for you as well? Just on that, we're, we're starting to see a lot more provide, providers trying to diversify their hours into local authority contracts, but going into a bit of private as well, yeah. so they're not putting all their eggs in one basket. Is that something that you've seen as a, has been more attractive as a business? Yeah, it's it's certainly, from an, from an acquisition perspective, when you're looking at these businesses, the more revenue streams they've got, yeah. the more security that gives you in terms of the future-proofing of that business's value. Um, because if one contract walks away, but that, that business has six or seven and it's split across those, it's not as big of a hit as if it only has one or two, whereby 70% of it is based on that one contract. Yeah. So it certainly can give you, it's not the be all and end all, mm. but it can certainly give you some, as a buyer, some sense of security that not all of your value is tied up in one particular revenue stream. Mm. So, so yeah, that's definitely one element of it. But then there's also the kind of the approach of, well, have these sellers just sweated the business to maximise profit? So you see some instances where there's no reinvestment into that business. It's purely a case of they see it as a cash cow. They're pulling all the money out of dividends. They're paying themselves big money, but they're not reinvesting in that company. So what you really want to know is, you know, have they invested in the leadership of that company? Have they reinvested in systems and software so that when those vendors step away, that business can continue operating in the way it has been? Mm-hmm. You don't want to necessarily have to get in there, find the training standard is nowhere near up to scratch because you're then having to cover that cost and bring those kind of that your standards from your business into that business. So it's it's another thing that adds adds some uh, kind of element of certainly post completion yeah. a, a more workload for you as a buyer really. And just on that point specifically, are there any particular systems, processes, or software that you that as a bare minimum they need to be having X, Y, and Z in? So. It depends on size again because lots of the smaller businesses are still operating as they were 20 years ago um, and that's for a number of reasons it's not all the time because a, a vendor has decided to to pull all the money out sometimes it's just a case of that's you know these people got into social care when they were 30 years old 20 years old mm. and they're still operating the business as they were then so we've seen we've bought businesses that were entirely paper-based mm. and it's a it's a period of transition transition to sort of move them onto our systems but certainly now you, you know you, you you want the sort of right financial system so that we can integrate that with ours in terms of management accounts and things like that certainly things like rostering systems mm. are important um you know there's lots of there's lots of different rostering systems out there um not that it makes a difference but certainly it makes it's, it's easier again once you've completed the deal if they're on a system you're familiar with or the system that you're on mm. so they're, they're the key things other than that within across the sector unless you get to larger providers you won't really see other software systems in place um, because people just either a don't know about them or know they exist because as a sector we're still sort of 20 years behind other sectors when it comes to technology Um, or it's just they simply can't afford to have those systems in the business on a single site so so that's another thing so the operational aspect is is a really important factor Um, and then lastly, really, is your scope for expansion and synergy. Mm. So post-completion, as a buyer, what are your value adds? Once you've bought that business and acquired it and brought it in, 
what where are you seeing areas to, to expand? It might be that you can get a contract in a new area that unlocks an additional piece of work. Um, it could be cost savings in terms of office level. Um, there's things like that that are sort of the last thing because certainly from our perspective, when we're looking at buying these businesses, we should, like, like I said earlier, from a financial performance, it should be sustainably standing on its own mm. without us bringing all of our kind of additional value adds to it. Yeah. It should be a sustainable business on day one um, because we'll talk about it earlier, but the, the period of transition post-completion and integrating that business doesn't happen overnight. So you can't have a business that's not performing as it needs to be on day one because it could take six, six, six months, 12 months potentially to fully integrate that business and get it onto everything that you want to do. Mm. So that they would be the sort of key things. And, and you can, once you've, refine those yourself as a buyer every single time something lands on your desk if you look at those sorts of things and it ticks those boxes you know it's worth the investment of time in terms of exploring that opportunity more but if it doesn't fit you know all of not necessarily all of those but certainly if two or three of those don't work mm. then it's one of those that as a business you should be looking at that as is it worth the investment of our time in this opportunity that's awesome so to summarize it's the geographic location the size of the business, the financial performance, the operational standpoint, are they reinvesting the business or are they just draining all the business for cash? And then what's the scope for expansion? So for um, businesses that want to actually uh, sell, they want to be looking at those um, particular points. So thanks for that. Yeah. Let's flip the coin. What if there's a care business that they actually want to go on an acquisition journey? They actually, you know, want to start acquiring businesses themselves. What 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 is some what would the internal setup of that business need to be? What are some of the things that they should start thinking about in order to be ready to bring on these businesses? So I, I think it's really it's quite a simple thing, really, and two two aspects in my mind, and, and the two that we really focus on is having strong and stable core business. So pre going into that acquisition sort of process is the, is the business as it is already strong and stable because if you've got a number of issues going on in the background it, by adding in another acquisition into that can drag your focus off those existing issues to focus on this one acquisition you have to have a strong and stable core business in the first instance that not that you you can leave to run itself but doesn't require you to necessarily be hands-on every day. Um, and that ultimately is based upon your management team. So you have to have an experienced management team that know what they're doing, both operationally and also, I would say, from, from an acquisition perspective. So like I said, we as a management team, we've got sort of 25, 30 years' experience of not only running Dom Care, supporting living, complex care businesses, but of doing a buy and build. So we know what we're looking for. We were able to, over that sort of 10 years pre-COVID, whilst we did three or four smaller acquisitions, it was very much a sort of consolidation period where those businesses grew organically. And it meant that when we came out of the back of COVID and we wanted to go on the acquisition sort of uh, trail, mm -hmm. as you would call it, um, we knew exactly what we were looking for. We, we knew the business was operating as it was and, and that it, it could continue to run um, and it meant that we could focus on on bringing other businesses in so 
yeah, we've invested significantly after these last five or six pre the, the, the one we've just done. Um, we invested heavily financially into bringing new roles into the business at senior management level mm. so that, you know, we probably were, were in the right position anyway to take the businesses that we've done in. But it's more about gearing yourself up for the next phase of growth yeah. aside from just those acquisitions. You know, we've got lots of growth ambitions to, to treble the business again over the next 12 months and then again after that. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you've got the right infrastructure in-house and the knowledge and the expertise to do it. Lovely. So let's dive into the actual deal itself. Now, one of the juiciest parts of the process is the negotiation, particularly uh, the conditions of sale and the earnout. And for those that uh, are not aware, an earnout is the period in which the founder stays in the business. Now, what type of earnout conditions are typical for a domiciliary care business? So it's it varies, and it, and that sort of depends on the deal itself, the situation around the acquisition and the buyer. So every buyer really in the market has different ways of doing things, especially when it comes to, to earnouts and deferred payments and things like that. But really there's there's two ways that this works. So you have a contingent deferred or you have a non-contingent deferred is the two sort of main ways this works. So contingent deferred be, being that the deferred payment is linked to some element of performance. And that could be financial, it could be operational, it could be around CQC ratings, it can be around a variety, it could be all three, um, but it, it depends on that, that deal structure ultimately. Mm -hmm. And then you have a non-contingent deferred, which is just a straightforward deferred payment whereby a buyer says, I'll pay you a, a sum on day one, and then I'll pay you a sum six months after, 12 months, 18. It can be a variety of lengths of period, mm -hmm. it can be, different quantums, but really what it depends on are kind of four things to an extent. So vendor price expectations. So what does the vendor want out of this deal? Because sometimes if a buyer really wants to buy this particular business because it knows it might be getting certain cost savings out of it and synergies or, or mm. it opens up a new contract area, the things I talk about earlier, let's say it hits all of those and you really want to do the deal, mm. but the vendor wants more than what not necessarily you can pay, but what you, what you value the business at. So it's a way of sometimes making those figures stack up by yeah. doing an earnout because yeah. you go, well, I can afford to pay X on day one. Yeah. But if you want this much, then I need you to wait a period of time and I'm going to base it on it hitting certain financial targets. Yeah. And if it does that, then we'll pay a higher value. But if it doesn't, you'll be limited to what we paid you on day one. Yeah. Um, there's also then what is the value of the business being based on? So is it on an actual performance? Is it based on a forecasted performance? Because if you're paying it based on an actual, you know what the business is delivering at the day you, you buy it. So you value it on that. Some vendors go, well, we're growing. The business yeah. is growing. We're taking on new contracts. We're opening new services. Therefore, I want some of that value paid to me. And I want you to base the value on that, not where it is on day one. Because in six months' time, it might be making double what it is today. So Can you kind of see that from the management accounts that it is going up? It's that? not necessarily always the management accounts. It's kind of looking at what's in there. So, so for example, supported living is quite easy because you look at their pipeline of referrals mm -hmm. over the next 12 months. You can see what they've got due to start. Yeah. Domcare, you could be looking at waiting for a contract. So they might be going, well, we're getting a new contract that's going to be 2,000 hours a week in this location. Therefore, 
you know, if that happens, we want to be paid, we want to get some value out of that because we've done the work in winning that contract. So if you're basing it on forecast performance, then you tend to have a higher amount of deferred um, and you'd probably make it contingent on that happening. Um, whereas if it's just a case of value, sometimes a buyer goes, well, I want to make this work, you want to make this work, so let's spread the cost out over a year or two years rather than just paying it all on day one. You've then got contracts. So like I said, if a contract is potentially up for renewal, so as I said earlier, let's say you've got a business that's 70% of its revenue is based on one contract. When that contract is potentially coming up for renewal three months after your completion, you might go, right, well, we'll pay you a chunk on day one, but the rest of it is going to be linked to that contract being renewed. So if the contract gets renewed, we'll pay you it all when it gets renewed. But if it doesn't, then we'll be taking the value off the table because the business might not retain all that work. So there's also that element. And then there's the leadership. So lots of smaller businesses tend to be owner-operated. So they're exiting on day one. So you could also have an element where you defer some payment of the, of the value based upon that leadership to spread your risk as a buyer because ultimately these businesses can be making money on day one but the minute you buy them, if everyone walks out and the operational team haven't got the ability to do it, you know, you start getting to territories of CQC coming in and, you know, rating the service down. Mm-hmm. You'll have things where the work's not being taken on because your rostering of calls isn't as efficient. Um, it, there's so many elements that the operational aspect of the business covers that if that's not right, your value could go as well and fall through the floor. So, so there's, they're the four key things that really you would, you'd be looking at. How much you defer is entirely based on the, the deal, the deal size, all those points. Mm. Um, but they're the main reasons why a buyer would be looking for some element of deferred. And then you tend to have, like I said, the two different types, um, depending on which one of those you go for. And for the, for the last point there, uh, the leadership, for the owner-operator, they would be incentivized to make sure that they've got a leadership team there who have all the skills and knowledge so that when they leave, the business can continue on. But is there anything that they can do to maybe incentivize that leadership team to stay? So there's certainly elements of succession planning, which is is not done enough in these businesses. Mm. Um, they're not prepped, you know, you don't get these sorts of businesses really that have been prepped for sale. Um, it's kind of a vendor decides that they want to retire, they take it to a broker who puts it out on the market and it goes that way. It's only when you get to the larger corporate sort of sellers um, whereby they've actually prepped this business for sale. So what I would say is if someone's thinking about retiring, it would be a case of start prepping that business for sale and it would start with the management team you know, get someone else in there as registered manager, start stepping back, give more responsibility to that person, incentivize them through, you know, there's lots of ways you can incentivize people. But, you know, if you want to put in place a bonus structure based upon hours growth and things like that, then that's that's a particular way of doing it. Um, but certainly it's, it's one of the major things because as a buyer, you don't want to have to get in there and bring your own registered manager in place, ideally, especially when it's standalone, less so if they're smaller and you're bolting them into an existing office. Mm. But certainly on a standalone basis, you want a registered manager that's going to continue in that business from day one onwards. Yeah. Um, otherwise, the, the whole 
the whole company can lose focus and because there's no one leading it at the end of the day. That's right. So let's put ourselves into the picture, um, into the shoes of the business that has just been bought. The, uh, the owner-operator, you know, sells into the sunset. Yeah. Now, it could be quite unsettling for the actual internal team. Is there anything that can be done to sort of help a, a smooth transition for that new business coming in? Before we dive into the answer to that question, did you know 73% of people expect organizations like yours to understand their unique needs and expectations? And a whopping 98% of professionals say that they benefited from automation as it allows them to save time and focus on more customers. 98%? That's almost everyone. Want to find out more about what your customers expect from your service? Download Salesforce's State of Service report to discover the trends in the market and keep your business in the know. The direct link can be found in the show notes below. Now back to the episode. So I think it's 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 one of those that we're as a like I said as a, as a leadership team we've been doing this for a while. Mm. But I think where where we are different is by our own admission we're learning every time we do this. Mm. Every deal is different. Every culture and every organisation is different. So every time we go through this process, we're still learning. And when we acquire these teams, one of the major things that that we you want to get across from day one is that we want them to be comfortable with us as the new owners, and they want us to they want we want them to feel supported by us, like they're going to get our support both financially from an investment perspective, but also as a from a time, you know, that we're going to put the time into that business to help them get through that process because, like you say, it is a difficult process, and lots of these people potentially have worked for these owners for twenty years in some cases. Mm-hmm. So they see each other as family. So it can be massively unsettling for them. But it's certainly never a one-size-fits-all with, with any of these. You can't, you can't go into them with a sort of, this is the way we're going to do it, bang. Because it, it just can't work like that. Because you get some cultures whereby they think it's a great development and it's going to be brilliant for the business. We're going to be able to do all this change and all that sort of stuff. But then you get some who are... We don't like change. We don't want that. So you've got to manage it completely different. But I would say to anyone that's acquiring, don't break things for the sake of change. So I think where lots of people going into it the first time might might fall over with the process is that they acquire the business and they think, well, that's not the way we do things, so we need to change that. Mm. But ultimately, you know, just because it's not the way you do things doesn't mean it's not right yeah. or good. So there's lots of there's lots of ways that actually we can learn from them yeah. as a business. Um, and there'll be lots of things that we will want to change and go, we need to bring this up to our standard or we want to move this and we want to change that. But there's also things where if you spend time with those people and you listen to the way they do things, that actually you go, this could work for the rest of our group. And let's try and implement that in these offices because... That's a really clever way of doing it. I was actually thinking that. Um, is there anything that you can share that you've actually learned from the guys on the ground and that you've looked and said, you know what, actually, this is well, actually a better way of doing it? I, th- I think one, one, one simple way, and it's, it's kind of one of those that's becoming more and more relevant in the sector, is the overseas recruitment mm. thing. So we all know in this sector that domestic recruitment is challenging, especially when you get 
to a certain level where you know, the volume you need to recruit is so high that it's so hard to recruit domestically. So more and more businesses are moving towards supplementing their domestic recruitment with overseas recruitment. It was something that we hadn't as an organisation previously done and we didn't necessarily, from a knowledge perspective, know how the process was going to work. So one of the businesses we acquired had been doing it for the last 18 months and had already got 15 or so staff on the, on, on their licence. Awesome. So from day one, we've been able to almost use them to gain an understanding of how the process works, how they're utilising it, and now we're looking at rolling that out across the whole group. So it's things like, it's things like that, but you know, at the end of the day, especially with provider businesses, mm. with, with dom care, supportive living and complex care, that it's unlike a care home whereby when you acquire a care home you've got the bricks and mortar value behind it mm. ultimately when you're buying these dom care businesses supportive living businesses and complex care businesses they don't have that asset back yeah. the asset that you're buying is the people yeah. and it's not you know it's not only those people but it's their knowledge they have and you shouldn't just go in there and dismiss it because it's not the way you're doing things yeah. so I would just say, don't break things that you don't need to break. Spend some time getting to know the team, understand the way they're doing things, listen to what they're doing. Because certainly, there will 100%, you won't go in there and think this is perfect. You'll, you will definitely want to change things. But even if you can get two or three things from each deal that you do, that you can then roll out across the rest of your group, mm. it, it's, it's worth just taking a bit of time to understand, understand how it's actually operating. I'm curious also, so let's say, for example, that individual who helped teach the group yeah. about hiring overseas, there's a lot of, for them, it's probably quite empowering for them to know that, hey, I can actually share my knowledge with everyone else. Yeah. There must be quite a lot of, well, well is there? Is there a lot of opportunities for businesses to grow? Let's say, for example, there's territories, do, do, you, do people get promoted and move to different parts of the business is that yeah we, it's, it's certainly something we do so we, we do allow because we've got you know 14 locations now mainly across the north but also down south we absolutely if someone wants to move from domiciliary care into supported living we'll absolutely support that and try and if we can support that person in the supported living side of things we will in terms of locations we, we've kind of the way we've got our sort of geographical footprint is that Certainly, they definitely overlap, but it's it's more from a service perspective that they overlap rather than geographical. So we might have a, for example, the, the complex care business, which is based down south, actually does a lot of work with commissioners based up north. So it's it's certainly not a territorial sort of, um, you know, uh, butting of heads between any any offices um, because they're the end of the day there's so much work out there at the moment um because people just haven't got enough capacity to take them on that you can't almost fight with each other over work let alone in the same organization it's um it's it's just not like that really at the moment so that's yeah so coming back to the acquisition there's clearly so many levels to this process but just taking a step back from your perspective when you're looking at the whole process are there any huge red flags that like kind of come out to your face and also are there any other 
green flags that you say, you know what, that really stands out and that's something we should pay attention to? Uh, well, there's certainly lots of red flags that you, yeah. you, you need to look out for. Um, I suppose the, the first ones, they kind of, again, overlap with what we were saying earlier, but national minimum wage compliance is a really big one mm. and it's something that's not really looked at by that many people. They don't know how to necessarily actually analyse true national minimum wage compliance. And the thing with that is that there's so many uh, penalties, financial penalties and reputational damage it can do. Mm. Um, you know, especially when you're doing a, a share purchase and even now with cheaper regulations, that, that liability will transfer over with you. So you have to absolutely make sure that that business is compliant with national minimum wage. Because if they're not and you acquire that business, HMRC come in and inspect mm. and they find out that actually you have got a breach the fines are, are huge but also you'll be named and shamed as an employer and it wouldn't be the previous owners that get named and shamed it'll be you so from a reputational standpoint that's a real big red flag um, that if there's no com if it's non-compliant um, to an extent it's a it can be a deal breaker for you um, financial performance you know, you get told that the business is making X amount every year. You get in there and do your financial due diligence, and actually it's not. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a big problem through COVID because of the amount of grant funding that, that businesses were getting. It was um, over-inflating their bottom line in, in some instances because you were able to pay for recruitment costs and things like that. So when you're actually working out sustainable performance of the business, you can't take that into account. But lots of sellers were going, well, no, this was what we did last year, so why should we not value it on that? So that was a challenge. So that can be a red flag is that you can be told one thing, you get further down the line with DD and then find out that actually it's not making what you thought it was. So in those scenarios, you're literally doing ad backs to say in a real-life scenario, yeah. if you were maybe paying yourself correctly as a business owner, yeah. if you were, weren't, didn't have these grants, what is the true yeah. performance of the business? Because sometimes you, know, you get vendors going, well, I'm exiting, so you take my salary out. And then you have to go, well, who's actually running the business for you then when we take over? Yeah. So you can't take out your whole salary and say that's an ad back because if you're not there, who's going to run the business? Mm. Um, so there's all these things that from a financial standpoint can be red flags. Um, contracts, again, um, if you've got a major contract that's up for renewal very soon after that, or if you find out during DD that the contract isn't going to be rewarded, mm. they're, they're big red flags for you. Um, but there's probably so many when you get down, you know, pension, <laughs> pension compliant. There's so many different things that, yes, you can cover off through legal contracts later down the stage. But it's kind of one of those that you do you want to be acquiring a business with those problems that you're going to have to fix on day one? Because I, you can't underestimate, kind of going back to the integration point, as a buyer, you can't underestimate a, how much of a problem a problematic acquisition could destabilize your core business yeah. um, because if that business comes in and all your management team's focus has to go on in terms of solving problems for that business mm. your core business if it's not right you know slowly but surely will start to, to show the effects of being left so it's one of those that you have to weigh up and that's where having that leadership team and management team that have been through the process and know what they're looking for is vital so just out of interest, there's a load of people who are acquiring businesses and they're looking for businesses who are in trouble, maybe have a low CQC because they want to go in, add a lot of value, um, 
and then you know they they make higher profits etc it sounded like from your perspective you actually want a better performing business yeah I think it's don't get me wrong you can buy underperforming businesses at a good price turn them around and make more money on them but I suppose it's it goes back to the, the sort of driver for where our business is going and what we want to do and like I said earlier because we're still family owned we make the decisions on what we want to do with the business and we're happy with something taking 10 years where someone else might go, I want to do it in three or four. Mm. So we'd rather buy good businesses at fair value that we know we can integrate, that yes, there will be some problems, but problems that we know we can deal with, bring them in and keep operating them as a stable business. That's why we're able to do seven, eight a year because we're buying the right businesses that fit with our values, that fit with the culture, that fit with our criteria each time. Um, that allow us to be able to see the volume that we're doing and grow the way we're growing because we're not taking on something that then we have to spend the next two years trying to fix to get it to a value. It's almost like they come in, let's help you, let's support you. How can we make this business better than what it already is without having to take it apart and put it back together again? And if there's a, a, an owner-operator listening to this right now, um, and they do want to sell eventually, what is the one piece of advice? What's the major thing that you would say, focus on this particular area? I know there's so many things as we've gone through, but what would the, be the big thing, the big green flag that if you were to look at it and you said, hey, we need to, we need to pay attention to this business? Um, I would say, well, I would say pre, if you're starting to think about Selling, I would say absolutely it's the, whole, it's the succession planning element of it um, and making sure that's right. But I think the minute you decide you want to sell, um, I, I, I personally would say getting the right advisors, building the right team around you to sell the business. And that's whether it be brokers, accountants, solicitors, having a good team. Um, it might cost you more than just going to a, a small boutique firm. Some, some small boutique firms are really good, don't get me wrong, but having the right advisors around you through this process um, will save you probably a lot of money, but also in the long run in terms of the way they'll negotiate for you, um, but also the advice you're going to get going through the process. You want people that have done this before, know what to expect, know what to look out for for you. This is both buy side and sell side, um, but certainly as a seller, when you've never been through this process before, um, you want someone else that has been and that you know you can rely on their advice because it will take a lot of stress and pressure off you throughout the whole deal process. That's a golden nugget there. So there's something we're actually asking all of our guests and what we're saying is, in an ideal world, if you could implement anything in the care sector to make a positive impact, what would it be? Forget the how, but if you could implement anything to make a positive impact, what would that be? Probably perception. Perception. And it's not necessarily implementing something, but changing something would definitely mm -hmm. be the perception of the sector. Because I think if you change the perception of the sector, it would impact so many different things from a, a funding perspective, a, uh, a talent perspective and innovation perspective if you change the, the perception of, of what our sector is and what it does um, you know the funding would improve 
because people would be, you know, the government or private paying customers would be happy paying more because of this because they view the service as important. Whereas at the moment, I would I would say that they don't necessarily. The general public perception isn't that. If we increase the funding, ultimately it means that we can invest more in recruitment of talent. At the moment, you know, I mean, something we're we're trying to drive initiatives with, you know, apprenticeships and things like that. You you hardly ever hear people coming out of university going, I want to get a graduate job in in the care sector. Um, they might go want to go and work in healthcare or things like that, but not not in social care. Um, and very few very few companies offer it, and that's because I think it's it's a case of the investment in time cost of recruiting those people that people just aren't able to do it there's the innovation element of which we touched on earlier whereby you've got people still on paper-based systems you know I, I just baffles me mm-hmm. you know one of the one of the businesses we acquired we went in there and the amount of paper that was in the office is just crazy um, so you know it would certainly help with innovation we touched on AI earlier and things like that At the moment people just either don't even think about it because they've never heard of it um, but also, even if they have, we all have limited amounts of money we can reinvest into things like that because they are very much trial and error, mm. um, and they're not cheap nowadays with things like AI and, and new systems and software and developing things like that. So I think if you change the perception, it would, it would alter so many elements of the sector um, that that would probably be the one thing that I would, I yeah. would say. And you touched on AI. I was, you know, I, was, I mentioned I was having dinner with your dad, and we had a conversation about AI. But that's a whole different yeah. conversation. I might have to, I might have to get him on. Yeah. But Ben, just wanted to say thank you so much for your time. You gave so much value. People listen to this. You definitely got a lot of value from this. I've, I've got a whole notebook <laughs> of, of notes there for anyone that's actually interested in selling their business. Yes. Um, what's the best way to contact you? What's the best way to reach out? Um, best way to reach out is either. Drop me a message on LinkedIn or email me. Um, I'm always around to, to meet up with people and listen if they want to, if they're looking at selling or considering selling or just want to have a chat, really. Brilliant. So what we'll do is we'll link your details in the show notes. Thank you very much, Ben. Cool. No problem. So many fantastic insights there. And I wanted to add to the conversation to make sure we had the perspective through a legal lens. Let's hear from Jade. So great to be here with you. Um, if we could just start from the top and give you, if you can give yourself a helicopter view introduction of who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm Jade Ken, a senior associate in the healthcare team at Stephen's Green Solicitors. We're based in the Southwest, but work nationally. Um, my bread and butter work is buying and selling care homes. We also work on their restructures, their governance um, structures, and also refinancing. But the idea is a lot of healthcare clients come to me and we can help them with any legal needs, whether that's employment, property, uh, litigation, if something's got a little bit tricky, whatever it is, we will be able to help. Awesome. So, Jake, diving straight in, there will be providers listening to this who might be already thinking of selling. And there'll be some who are not thinking of selling, but eventually they have ambitions too. From your experience, what are some of the tips you can share uh, with these operators from a perspective of getting your house in order whilst you're actually running the company to make it a smoother transition when it comes to the sale? The first thing I would say is preparation is key. So if you don't want to sell for one, two, three, even five years time, think about it now. 
and um, maybe have a word with your solicitor, your accountant and start getting your house in order. It's never too early. Um, I like to think of the top three things to think about at the forefront of your mind is CPP, contracts, people and property. Mm. Contracts, um, I often ask clients to draw up a contracts table, which sounds pretty dull, but actually is super useful. Okay. So if you just list your contracts and who they're with, are they signed? how much money is involved in it, can you get out of the contracts. It gives you a really good overview of what you've got in place. Maybe you want to get rid of some, maybe you want to not auto-renew. And then moving on to people, have a little look about the people that you've got in your organisation. Are there too many senior managers? Are there not enough carers? Do you rely a lot on agency staff perhaps? Do you still need to get that sponsorship license? Have you maybe got a sponsorship license and never really used it because you don't quite know what you're doing? Or maybe you have a tricky employee that you perhaps you need to get rid of or you need to deal with them in, in a proper way. Sort all these things out now so then when you go to sell, your company looks tip top. Mm. Moving on to property, the best thing to do is have a look again at your property. Look at the general overview, the extension that you had, say, last year. Have you got the right planning permissions for that? Have you got the paperwork that sits behind it? Maybe you've had a yurt build in your garden. We have seen it happen. Mm. Um, have you got the right permissions for it? Did you tick all the boxes? When a buyer comes in, they will forensically go through all of your paperwork. So make sure you have it ready to give them. Just out of interest, out of those, the CPP, what, where's the area that people usually fall down? Um, I would usually say the people. The two things that we see crop up, I would say pretty much every sale, is the right to work checks are not done correctly. Um, quite often people think, oh, these people are British nationals, I don't have to do a right to work check, which is incorrect. Um, and the other thing that crops up a lot is holiday pay. In the care industry particularly, people regularly do overtime and they do sleep-ins and those two things cause tricky issues with holiday pay. So if you're not sure, ask the questions now and get it sorted. So provided that's not even looking to sell, would it be advised to actually just do an audit of your people contracts just to make sure? Definitely. Those two things have to be right regardless of whether you want to sell. Awesome. Now, a lot of people feel that finding the buyer is probably one of the biggest factors in the, the sale process. But one of the biggest ones um, that a lot of people don't consider is actually the actual structure of the cell, including things like the earnout. Now, what are some of the key considerations um, that people should consider when it comes to the negotiation to make sure that they get the best outcome? Okay. Um, there are several different ways for you to effectively get the money for your business. One of them is earnout, as you mentioned. Um, the Earnout has pros and cons. So the way that earnout works is you would sell your business, but you would stay working within the business. If you hit certain targets, then that means you get more of the cash. If you don't hit these targets, you don't get the cash. So it is a bit of a risky move. You may decide that once you've sold the business, you want out, you don't want to stay within it, particularly if someone else is in control and it's not you that's holding the purse strings. So it works for some people. Some people it doesn't work for at all. Another way to perhaps structure it is deferred consideration where you get some of your money up front, but then also you get stage payments. So say another wedge six months later, another wedge a year later. And something to kind of almost tag on to that is if you're getting a deferred payment, 
consider security. Do you want to put a charge against the company, about against the buyer's house? Because then if they don't pay you on time, you want something to go back with. So in a scenario where, I might be pointing on my toes here, where someone's uh, arranged an, an earn out and there's some deferred consideration and it's based on key metrics, but they're not inside the business, so they can't influence those metrics. What can they do? Is there anything they can do? Yeah, so normally if there's an earnout, they would stay within the business. That's how an earnout is usually structured. It's quite rare to come out of the business if yeah. you've got an earnout. If it's deferred consideration, which is based on certain metrics, there's not a lot they can do if they've left the business. They might have influence, for example, if they know the manager that's still on the ground, um, but they will have limited influence. We don't often see transactions structured like that just for that reason. Awesome. And also just from a um, management team perspective, is there anything, going back to your CPV, CPP, is there anything from a contract perspective that operators should be considering to maybe increase the likelihood that that management team would stay um, after the sell? Yeah, so I would say bring your management team on board at, at the first chance you're thinking of selling. Um, you can give them different incentivizations. One would be you could offer them a bonus if they stay on, if you successfully sell, you can say you can have a percentage of the the sale proceeds, for example. And then if you stay on longer, then I might give you another little wedge of money. Um, you also might consider, say, employee share schemes where if they hit certain targets, they can get shares in the business. It all depends on whether you they want to leave with you. Some people are very aligned with the owner and they don't want to stay with a new owner or whether they want to stay in the business and work their way up. Awesome. And you being, uh, being proved from a legal perspective, there might be some owner operators listening to this and they find it quite daunting, you know, going through this process for the very first time. And they might just think, where, where do we start? But from your perspective, are there any sort of sneaky little things that people put into contracts that uh, these people should consider uh, and trying to avoid yeah i would say something the buyer does a lot uh is they get a little bit excited at the beginning of a transaction and they might go and speak to the local authority for example about the contract that the seller has with the local authority or they might come in and start speaking to employees or they want they ask for a site visit and want access to your systems all i would say is right at the beginning of the transaction just hold them back a little bit because you want to be pretty much nearly ready to do that transaction before you let the buyer into all your systems and in access to your employees. Because if the transaction falls over, it's quite hard to unwind if the buyer's already fully integrated within the business. So what, just playing devil's advocate, how can the buyer truly understand the business? What is there anything that uh, providers can do instead? Yeah, so how it works as part of the process is the buyer will issue what we call a due diligence questionnaire, which is probably about 20 pages of questions, which the seller can answer, which is absolutely fine. The seller can provide the answers to the buyer. If they want further information, they can ask for further information. If you do it like that, then the buyer's not on the ground talking to your employees or to talking to the local authority at perhaps a too early stage. Um, so essentially, listen to your advisors, go through the process rather than jumping the gun okay and we had a previous episode um from an acquirer actually point of view one of the things that they said it's poor it's important for uh, the company selling to make sure they've got that right team with them 
from a legal perspective, if someone was looking for, you know, a, a partner to help them through that process, what are some of the questions that they should be considering when uh, bringing on uh, a law firm to help them through that process? Okay. Um, I would say definitely ask a couple of law firms. Some law firms you may just click with. Um, it's a complete roller coaster ride when you sell your company and it's pretty intense for two to three months. So you want to have a person that you can get on with and that you gel with. Obviously, fees are important, so get a fee quote and just double check the scope of work which fits under that fee quote. Sometimes people will exclude certain things, but I would say pick up the phones of three different people and just see who you get on with and then select it from there. Awesome. Now, it's something that we have recently started asking on this show. And what we're doing is we're saying, Jay, if, you, if I asked you, what's one thing you would change in the sector, forgetting about the how that you think will have a huge positive impact, what's that one thing you would change? Uh, for me, I think it would be lovely if social care workers and people on the ground within these care homes have a similar status to say NHS workers. They have real career progression, they have salary bands, and when people are coming out of school, they see care as a choice of career rather than a last minute thing. I know that the um, several people are doing consultations on this at the moment. It'll be really interesting to see where this goes. Awesome, awesome. Well, really appreciate you coming on the show. I know it was a very quick one, but we'll definitely have you back again. Thank you for having me. If anyone's got any questions, where's the best place that they can reach out to you? Um, if you just email me, j.ken at stevens-scone.co.uk or just type it into Google and give me a ring on my mobile. Happy to answer any questions. Awesome. We'll make sure that's tagged in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to Tea with Toby. If you found this episode useful, don't forget to share it with one of your colleagues from the sector. And if you have any questions, drop me an email at team at If you're new to Tea with Toby, do check out previous episodes in the season and also look out for future ones. Tea with Toby is produced by specialist care sector, digital marketing agency, Prosperwell, caring for the brands that care for others. Tea with Toby. 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 Tea with Toby.